Hello, and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the NMVVRC's Director of Resources and Technology, and today we have uh, a a very special podcast for you. Um, We are recognizing the 41st National Crime Victims' Rights Week, which takes place April 24th to 30th. And uh, in order to commemorate National Crime Victims' Rights Week, we're going to be hearing from a few of the legends in the victims' rights world. Collectively, this group brings over 160 years of experience in in victim advocacy, assisting crime victims and survivors, and, and they all have some unique experiences relating to mass violence events uh, as well. We'll be talking first to Jeanette Atkins, who is part of the original National Organization for Victims Assistance Crisis Response Team, and she's currently a NOVA trainer. She's going to tell us a little bit about that work. We'll also be talking with Janice Harris-Lord, who is the former National Director of Victim Services for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and she's the co-founder of Trauma Support Services of North Texas, which is an agency that has more than 50 therapists who serve victims of violent crime who don't have insurance or another any other ability to pay for services. In addition to that, she's also the grandmother of a survivor of the recent shooting at Timberview High School in Arlington, Texas. So she'll bring another perspective uh, to our conversation as well. We also have with us a repeat guest, actually a couple of repeat guests, uh, Anne Seymour, who is the co-founder of the National Center for Victims of Crime and currently our Associate Academic Program Director here in the NMVVRC. And last but certainly not least, we've got Dr. Dean Kilpatrick, uh, who is the director of the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center here at the Medical University of South Carolina. And he's, of course, also the director of the NMVVRC. Everybody, welcome. In this podcast, we're going to explore the National Crime Victims Rights Week themes, um, and, and their overall theme is rights, access, equity for all victims. But because we are the Mass Violence Center, and because a lot of what we do focuses on mental health and uh, resilience to mass violence, we're throwing in some content related to resilience in addition to rights, access, and equity for all victims. We also want all victims to be resilient. So those are going to be the four themes, and each one of our guests is going to be speaking to one of those themes uh, most specifically as we move through the podcast. First, we're going to start with rights, and to to lead us off talking about victims' rights is going to be Jeanette Atkins. Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Excellent. So Jeanette, although there were a few mass violence incidents before the 1980s, the mass shooting at the Edmond, Oklahoma post office in 86 is, it's kind of considered a seminal event in the victim survivor services field. Um, Can you explain that? Like why is the Edmond post office shooting so important? 
Sure. And thank you so much, Stan, um, for certainly for bringing that up, because that was the first mass violence incident that NOVA was actually um, requested to provide support by the governor of Oklahoma. And one of the things that I would like to say is that even in the early 80s, um, we didn't have a lot of victim rights in place at that time. I can remember working in a, a prosecuting attorney's office and not having um, the right to be present, the right to be heard, some of those basic rights that today we almost take for granted. And they were not there then. Mm. The other thing that was not there then, uh, I think we were all very skilled as victim advocates, law enforcement, even clinicians. If you look at providing support to people who had suffered traumatic events, we were used to and very skilled in providing one-on-one services to those victims of crime. But the Oklahoma City, I'm sorry, the uh, Edmond, Oklahoma uh, postal shooting was one of the first incidents where we had 14 people killed in one incident, Mm. uh, six injured. And that was a lot to handle for even that local victim services uh, program, if there even was one. And, you know, back in the early 80s, there were not a lot of programs. We saw sexual assault rate crisis centers, domestic violence programs, but we did not have a lot of either law enforcement-based or certainly prosecutor-based programs at that time. That's really interesting because they're so commonplace now. Exactly. And and people, again, I, I don't mean to say that we take all of this for granted, but it was not available back then. And certainly those of us who were working in those early years, and I know Ann Seymour and I are, are part of those old buffaloes, as they call us, um, that were doing that work back then. Again, we learned and were skilled and brought our abilities to help individual, even families. Um, I had a mass murder in the early 80s. It was three people and then those extended family members. That was considered a lot then. But imagine what it would be like to have a criminal incident in your own community where 14 people are shot and killed by a coworker and six others injured. And you certainly have more than you can even deal with, not to mention something that we saw later in Oklahoma City and then after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So, so it was really quite significant for the governor of a state to reach out to essentially a professional membership organization and say, this event has exceeded the ability of my state's crime victims response team to help. Can you please come in and make sure that our victims are taken care of? Is that, is that sort of a fair way of, of assessing what the governor did there? Absolutely. And it was pivotal for NOVA as well. Uh, Dr. Marlene Young had penned the NOVA crisis response model actually after the uh, Mount St. Helens eruptions, you know, where 51 people were killed. Um, There was over at that time what was considered $1.1 billion loss of property for people. And it was a natural disaster or considered that. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Dr. Young realized, especially in responding to the governor's request in Oklahoma after the postal shooting, was we have a lot of skills here in our membership of people who understand and know how to respond to crime victims. And why not take this model and apply it to larger groups of people who had experienced a very traumatic event together? Many similar reactions, but many unique reactions as well. And we recognize that and that we knew that sending in a team of, at that time, there were seven um, multidisciplinary team of professionals who went in to try to support the local services as well as those families who had lost someone in that incident of mass violence. Yeah, so that's a that's a great segue into my my next question, which is about Nova's crisis response model. Uh, you you mentioned that this was a team of seven interdisciplinary professionals, but what are their professions like? What is the Nova crisis response team? Who makes who makes up a crisis response team? I had the honor of going through the first actual organized NOVA crisis response training class, and it was made up of people and has since been also made up of people that have certainly crime victim advocates who have the skills that we've been talking about, law enforcement who also have um, the very unique set of skills to respond to violent crime, Um, but we also embraced people from the clergy clinicians, uh, mental health providers who bring excellent skills in providing support to those who have suffered trauma, um, as well as school personnel, um, people with other backgrounds that actually provide so much of a unique blend in the skills and abilities to respond to communities at large. But the NOVA crisis response model is designed to actually provide support and services to larger groups of people who've experienced a, an incident together. Um, again, and I can't emphasize it enough, that they would have similar responses, but also according to whatever's going on in their own personal lives, um, may have very unique responses as well. I would like to add that it is not a therapeutic uh, response. Uh, it is a response that provides crisis intervention services, um, helps to kind of take a little bit of that heat off the boiler plate of, of that initial reaction uh, to experiencing something of violence, and then provide ongoing support and connection to ongoing services such as clinical or therapeutic support, as well as criminal justice support. Gotcha. Okay. So that sounds like quite, um, uh, in, in terms of expertise, sort of soup to nuts, but obviously, as you say, not uh, a psychotherapeutic. It's not, you know, there are sort of those jokes about send in the teams of grief counselors. It, it doesn't sound like uh, that's what NOVA does, but it's more the uh, victim services and law enforcement uh, and, and advocacy kind of expertise that comes in. Um how has the crisis response team had an impact on mass violence response since the Edmond Post Office shooting in 1986? I mean, how, what sort of trends do you see over time in how the crisis response team has helped? 
Well, I, I think probably one of the saddest things that Anne and Janice for sure would probably agree with me on is that back then, I can remember there were so few of us trained that we were put on standby for almost every incident you heard about on the news. Hmm. And we all kind of knew that one, Nova would do an outreach, usually to the local prosecutor's office, victim assistance program and or prosecutor. And we would only go in by invitation. Hmm. So under obviously the, uh, uh, direction of local law enforcement who usually had control of the mass violence incident. But we we almost got called and put on standby in every incident. And they were one, two, maybe three a year. We would think, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. Nowadays, I think uh, Ann and Janice, uh, certainly with Janice's grandson being involved recently in a school shooting, this has become commonplace now. So I think that's where we've seen a major change. Um, For us back then, when it was few and far between incidents, today it's almost become a but for the grace of God go we to my fellow advocates and communities out there. Um, you may experience it. And sometimes we kind of feel like it's not may, it's when, not if, but when. So we have seen that change. Um, The other thing I'd like to add is because we have continued since the early 1980s, when I mentioned having gone through that very first Nova Community Crisis Response training, we have trained thousands of people uh, across this country and internationally to respond to just these types of incidents, as well as those of a natural or man-made disaster. But um, because we've seen such a frequency now in those that are uh, violent criminal acts, we have, have more teams that are ready at the local level and at the state levels that can respond in their own communities um, or with the backup from the Nova National Crisis Response Team. That's awesome. That's really impressive, and and such a such a needed service. I mean, I know one of the things that we talk about as a theme in the NMVVRC is is preparedness, and you know, a lot of communities don't really have great preparedness for mass violence events because they are relatively, even though they're much more common than they used to be they're still relatively rare. And it's wonderful to know that there is a crisis response team out there that's ready to assist communities who may not have a great deal of of preparation um, already for how they would handle something, like you say, but for the grace of God, go we uh, in their community. Um, with, With respect to the theme that we're talking about, you know, rights, what what rights do victims and survivors have that are relevant to mass violence crimes? They actually have the same rights that any victim of violent crime, either by state or by the federal statute, would have um, in the respective jurisdictions where these crimes occur. And I think that local advocates, which is why NOVA will always try to connect with the local victim advocates. Um, And I'm going to use the Las Vegas 
Harvest uh, concert shooting as a perfect example. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to say this, but thank God this uh, perpetrator uh, ended his life by suicide because I can only imagine what it would have been like for local victim services to have to go forward with the prosecution of that individual uh, with over 500 victims, uh, 61 of them deceased and many injured and many psychologically experiencing trauma from that for the rest of their lives. Um, But something that I could compare that to is the Oklahoma City bombing. And if you remember, um, and and Anne and and I are very familiar with our colleagues in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office that had to make arrangements for all of the victims' families from the Oklahoma City bombing, which at that time we thought was bigger than all of us. Um, We had no idea that 9-11 was around the corner, but at that time, um, when Terry McVeigh, for example, was tried, those victims had a right to be heard and be present. Well, being present for over 160-something people, uh, their surviving family members or those who might have survived the bombing, um, what in the world would you do with all these people? And they made arrangements for them to watch over closed-circuit television the entire trial. Um, Probably another really good example with victims' rights in a mass um, incident of sexual violence was in the Michigan, um, I, I, can't, I apologize, but the doctor's name has left my head. Um, but in that incident, uh, or multiple incidents, we had over 150 women that came forward to speak at his sentencing mm-hmm. and to be heard. And that judge heard every single one of them that wanted mm-hmm. to speak. So it was very powerful testimony. And and Dr. Larry Nasser is, I think, the person you're referring to. Yes, I am. And in in those instances, we are seeing now that we can accommodate and make certain that victims' rights to be present and to be heard are actually recognized. And and I think that uh, support from national organizations. you know, are extremely important, like NOVA or the NMVVRC, to make sure that people have that support while going through that. And we can provide backup to local victim services who, again, are very skilled at providing it on an individual basis, but may not be prepared or ready for mass numbers of those victims and affording them their rights. Well, extra credit, Jeanette, for getting the acronym for our center correct. It's it's a rare occurrence when people actually get it, it fully correct. I don't know if you have a cheat sheet in front of you or not, but that's a very impressive feat. And I, it, it leads to sort of my last question. You began by t- uh, that answer by talking about the Las Vegas Harvest Festival shooting and sort of being thankful that the perpetrator ended his life by suicide and so the folks didn't have to do with a didn't have to go through a trial like the McVeigh case or on a smaller scale like we did here in Charleston with the Emanuel Nine shooting. Exactly. But is there a difference in, in rights that victims have or, or experience when they don't have a trial to uh, participate in? Are are there aspects of the experience in terms of um, from the victim's perspective? that are affected when the perpetrator is killed? 
I absolutely believe that they are because people um, seek or want justice when something like this happens. And when a perpetrator is deceased, um, obviously they have no option to face that offender, to let that offender know or to articulate the impact that that crime has had on their individual lives. And so I do think there's a missing piece uh, in those cases for people. But I do think that we, when we invite, uh, and you all are very good about doing that in your organization, NOVA does it in our, uh, our national, our annual conference, where we ask those victims, if they choose to, to speak out and to talk about the impact of that horrific crime on their lives and how Mm. it's changed their lives, I think that gives them an opportunity that they would not have in the courtroom, in the traditional setting of the courtroom. And I I also believe that um, when we, I guess, listen to their reactions in Nova's response. And I, to me, I will reiterate one more time. I think it's invaluable to provide people that crisis response. I, I came from a program that did 24-hour crisis response for individual crime victims from the time the program started in 1982. And I believe that that helps mitigate some of that Um, long-term stress and trauma people may experience if they have the opportunity to just talk about their reactions to what they experienced and to be able to share that experience with others that have um, been there with them and, and, and experienced very similar reactions and unique ones, as I said before. Well, that's a powerful insight, Jeanette. Thank you very much. And um, uh, I, I appreciate your, your important perspective on rights and, uh, their, um, and the way that a crisis response team can help victims of a mass violence event uh, gain control and gain access to those rights. And, and that's a segue into our next segment where we're talking uh, about access. And to do that, we're going to have a conversation with Janice Harris-Lord. Janice, welcome. Thank you. Excellent. Um, So as as someone who's been a victim survivor advocate for a long time, and you're also uh, an author on self-help strategies for survivors and victims, from your perspective, um, what are some of the biggest issues that victims uh, have to deal with in terms of their access to victim services? Well, I think there's been a, a shift over the years from um, a, from a good balance between standardized models and the opportunity for creativity. And uh, I'll bounce a little bit off of uh, uh, Jeanette's comments um, in terms of NOVA's crisis response teams. Shortly after the uh, Edmund shooting, Uh, Some of you may remember there was a terrible uh, bus crash of children in Kentucky Mm. killed by a drunk driver. Um, So Mothers Against Drunk Driving and NOVA worked together uh, on an initial crisis response team. And uh, by the way, my sweet husband was the clergy on, on that team. So 
several things happened in the aftermath. Uh, we did the traditional things that Nova does, but then following that, MAD had the resources to send in a crisis response team of all professionals whose backgrounds were in drunk driving two more times after that, uh, about a month afterwards and then about three months afterward. So we could really do uh, quality follow-up with those folks. Then we were invited back years later for the uh, anniversary events because so many of those survivors felt a real need to get back with us and say, look, when you saw us, we were all burned up and wrapped up in bandages and a mess. And here's where we are now. We made it. We've survived. And it was really important for them to, to be with us during that experience. Another creative aspect that happened then was at the second MAD crisis response team event, we pulled together the volunteer firefighters and law enforcement officers who had responded to that bus crash so that they could meet up with the children and their parents who had survived. Wow. Another opportunity for the families to find the ones who worked on their, I'll, I'll say in, as this example, uh, maybe the child died, mm -hmm. but the parents still wanted to show up to find out the people who had been with their child at their last moments, uh, caring for them and trying their best to help. So honestly, that was one of the most beautiful human experiences, I think, of my lifetime, uh, being able to see how those work together. So in response to your question, I fear a little bit that that we're in a kind of a checkbox services mode sometimes. Um, the legislature says these are the services we have to provide, so check, 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 I'll do these, but without so much uh, opportunity for, for creativity and um, planning the next steps based on the previous step, um, with with a wide team of professionals coming together to do that. Um, I, I just loved those old days when we could pull together people. They gave their best to figure out what we were going to do next, and we did it, and it seemed to almost always work. So I loved that. I do think that we need more human contact still, with survivors, uh, especially at the law enforcement and, and immediate uh, trauma care aspect, um, with a with a reminder, I, I'm sure Dean will probably talk about this, but um, you want to get that thinking brain working as soon as you can. But in the immediate aftermath, and sometimes we're talking days or weeks, that prefrontal cortex just isn't working right. I mean, the amygdala's firing, 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 firing. And that may be about the time you get a huge packet of materials uh, with your crime victims compensation application and your victim rights law. And it, it, is, it is just overwhelming if timing isn't considered in terms of 
of when things go out and when contact is made. I, I've been talking about simplification, I guess, for 50, 60 years, 50 years now. Um, some of those forms are still overwhelming. I, I know efforts are being made to simplify them, but the print is small. There are lots and lots of words. It looks like a big formal thing. And um, uh, I, I just love the days when everybody got a personal phone call. Yeah. So, I mean, is it is it fair to say that one of the big issues in access is sort of the, I, I'm, I think I might be making up a word here, but the bureaucratification of, of the process and maybe the, the dehumanization of, of providing victim services? Yeah, those are great words. Yeah. I think I, I, I totally made up the bureaucratification <laughs> one. Yeah, we don't care. Okay. <laughs> um, honestly, one other thing I wanted to mention, and I, I didn't want to be rude, but since it's already come up, I'm going to go ahead and say it. If the name of the organization is simple, people know how to find you. You know, I, I and I'll tell you in a minute the great service that that Ann did in reaching out to me in the immediate aftermath of Calvin's shooting. But I, even today, I have to stop and think. Now, what is the name of that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas, you know, when it was Mothers Against Drunk Driving, everybody knew. Yeah, what that's, was that that's really straightforward. And who it was, and would give us a call. They they would find a way to reach us because they knew who we were. So uh, I do think that's kind of important. I'm going to let that one sit right where it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and but you mentioned you mentioned Calvin, your grandson, and yes. uh, we learned late last year that um, when the Timberview High School shooting in Texas happened, you responded in a different way than you've you've been uh, a responder to previous violent incidents because. Calvin, your grandson, is actually an English teacher at that school, mm-hmm. and not only was he there, he was he was injured yes. um, during the shooting. Um, how are you and Calvin doing? Well, I would say we're we're doing well. His physical wounds have healed up okay by now. Um, I won't go into the whole story, but the bullet is lodged in his body one-tenth of an inch below his aorta. Oh, which my means, goodness. Which means that it stopped just in time. And the reason it stopped just in time was because it took off a little chunk of a lung and a little chunk of his scapula, and which slowed it down, or he, he would definitely have, have died. Um, but scar tissue has formed around that now. There's no way it can be removed, but it is... It's, it's more solid in there than it was, and it seems to have attached to his lung a little bit. So he's been able to go through rehab, and, and physically, he's doing very, very well. Uh, still got a little bit of PTSD stuff going on with him, but uh, I, I think I would like to tell you uh, some things that I think helped. I hope you will. We were surprised. The whole family was surprised that on the second day after he was home from the hospital, he wanted to go back to the scene. Hmm. I I know traditionally in our field, we say, oh, you know, people are going to be re-traumatized. And and I sure think they would be if somebody made them go back. Mm -hmm. But he had a real desire to to go back there. 
So on the weekend, of course, he had a key to the school. So he, you know, he just went in <laughs> and uh, took his mom with him. And um, they walked the hall. They, uh, there was still some blood on the wall. There were bullet holes in the walls. I mean, the, the shooter shot a number of shots, and, but Calvin just got one. He was, he was caught in the middle between the two people that were having the fight. And that he did that with with no trauma reaction at all, uh, and still has not had um, what you might call uh, intermittent trauma reaction crises. Okay, and, and I think that helped a lot. Uh, the other piece was uh, you will be surprised, but to my knowledge. Here in the uh, Dallas Fort Worth Ar- Dallas Fort Worth Arlington area, I only know of one psychiatrist who is truly trauma informed, wow. and uh, and I've referred clients to him, so he owed me. Mm-hmm. So I called him immediately to see if he would see uh, see Calvin, and he said yes, absolutely. Let's get him started on some anti anxiety stuff right away uh and i will just see him in terms of therapy and won't charge you anything so that was that was really awesome so uh he has actually continued as his therapist and uh has been very um you know he's not making him tell the story over and over again he's just listening to what calvin wants to talk about and what his uh what his feelings are at the moment and he feels like that in the beginning, Calvin truly had some PTSD symptoms. Uh, he has persistently gotten better and never reached the number of symptoms to get a to get a true PTSD yeah, diagnosis. Gotcha. So uh, I think those are some good things um, that happened with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the rest of us. Well, I gotta, I gotta put a star by that grandma trauma stuff because, (laughs) first of all, this was my my first grandson, my first grandchild. So you know, I've always had a huge spot in my heart for this kid. And uh, sitting around that room in the hospital, waiting for us to be told whether he was going to live or die, um, you know, my concern was. Not only for Calvin, but here I had all, not all of my adult, other adult children uh, there, but more and more of them were coming in, all of them traumatized as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there having my own trauma reaction, but having to think, okay, how can I be most useful to everybody in this room? So it was kind of a double uh, whammy in terms of generational impact sure. on grandparents. So I just, I just wanted to throw that in a little bit. I think that's a good point. I think folks f- tend to focus on immediate family members and, and so forth and um, extended family members, uh, uh, grandparents in, in your case tend to, you know, maybe get, oh, well, they're not close enough to have this really affect them. But uh, obviously in your family, and I'm sure in many others, uh, that's a, it's a, it's quite a different experience than that. And, and um, uh, thank you for sharing what that was, 
was like for you and your family. I'm just wondering if that experience and, and the, the experiences that your family is still dealing with have led you to identify any areas that still need to be addressed when it comes to victim access to services after mass violence? Well, I'll begin with, uh, with Anne's initial uh, contact with me after the shooting, which, which was wonderful. Uh, but she, she called to, I don't, I, I don't believe it was a call. I believe it was an email. I can't remember. But anyway, the contact was, hey, uh, we just heard about the shooting at the school in your community. I'm sure you've got all your trauma therapists ready to go in and help. Just let us know if, we, if you need anything else. <laughs> so I got back and said, well, Anne, <laughs> it's my grandson who she has already met. Um, so that really changed changed the dynamic, but uh, that that initial being on top of that, I, I just can't give you all enough accolades for for that. That was really really good. I do want to talk about his mother's and my trauma reaction a, a, a little more long term. Um, for both of us, once we found out he was going to live, mm-hmm. um, we were so filled with gratitude. I mean, we were just gratitude, 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 gratitude. That that, that kind of covered up our trauma reaction. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, so we both had enough smarts to know that even though we felt like we were in good shape because we were just so grateful, we knew there was stuff underneath that. So we both got appointments very early on for our own trauma therapy. Um, we, we used EMDR, the therapist used EMDR, and it immediately uncovered uh, what was really underneath uh, I had one session, she had two, uh, but it was a very, very cathartic thing. Um, for me, where I had to go, I mean, it's where my own brain was telling me to go, was what would I be like right now had he died? And, uh, you know, that <laughs> that involved a lot of crying and, and so forth, but it really got it up and out of my system and uh, I think Robin's session was much the same way. Um, we, we did some work around what it felt like sitting in that room for what seemed like an eternity, but I think was about an hour and a half when no one was telling us anything about mm-hmm. whether, he was, whether he was going to live or not. That just must have been such an extraordinarily difficult time. Yeah, it really was. But... Um, Anyway, I, I think that's something that maybe we need to be, be aware of, that some people in the aftermath of things can can look really good because of the the worst didn't happen or whatever. So such an overwhelming sense of relief that maybe the worst didn't happen, but that doesn't mean everyone's hunky-dory. That's right. That's right. So, you know, continuing to watch people from the mental health perspective is, mm-hmm. is really important. 
What recommendations, if, if any, do, do you think you and your family would have for folks who are in elected office or maybe law enforcement when providing resources to victims and families affected by mass violence? Okay, I, I have some thoughts about that. But uh, before I do that, I, I want to say something about workers' compensation. Okay. Because um, Calvin is a teacher and it, the shooting was at school. So workers' compensation is the first payer. You know, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> we, are, we have still not needed crime victims' compensation, but we probably will. But um, the, the workers' comp people in our case, the initial ones were not very good. I mean, we actually fired two of them. But then we got to a good one. And, uh, but even she had never even heard of crime victims' compensation, mm. had no earthly idea what that was. Now, there, I'm sure it varies state by state, but uh, I said, well, I want, I want you to call your supervisors and see if any of them know anything about it, because I was going to all the doctor's visits along with her. <laughs> and... Um, so she did, and sure enough, nobody had any idea what crime victims' compensation mm-hmm. was. And so they re- we need to do a better job of getting to those folks because even though workers' comp is the first payer, they don't cover everything. In terms of law enforcement, I would just say try to update the family of injured victims as soon as you possibly can. We were, we were getting all kinds of things over television before we knew anything, including unnamed network, I guess, you can all guess who it is, uh, stating that it was unconfirmed at this time, but we do think the teacher who got shot has died. Oh my. So, and still the, uh, the hospital, the trauma surgeon, nor the investigator was talking with us. So, you know, we had to deal with that. Now, I will say when the investigator did talk with us, he was great. And so was the trauma surgeon in in the way they approached it. And actually, so was the chaplain. I mean, you know, it scares you to death when you're in a situation like that and somebody walks in and says, I'm the chaplain here. Mm, But but he started out by saying, I'm the chaplain and I am not here to give you a death notification. So that was good. Um, he just said he was there to help and, you know, we didn't need his help because our pastor was there already. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the trauma surgeon kind of started the same way. He came out to say, well, Calvin is very, very, very lucky. And then went on to tell us that the bullet had stopped, you know, right before the Mm -hmm. aorta. So that was a good opening. When the investigator came in, uh, he was very insightful about letting us know that the shooter had still not been apprehended. And that's why all the mumbo jumbo about uh, security was in place and all that. But what I, what we loved about him was he was emotional and uh, he said this had been really hard for him because he has an adult son, this same age. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we just loved that. We, Mm -hmm. we just loved that he took off his mask and was a real human being before us. So, And that sounds a lot like what you were 
describing earlier, you know, sort of with the humanization of the service delivery. And I mean, we're not talking about there needs to be a mat. I mean, at least you're you're not saying there needs to be massive policy changes and this that your your most salient experiences here. It sounds like were human interactions with people who cared, and um, I think that's an incredibly important message. Yeah, I will say in terms of your question about um, uh, laws and so forth. I do think it would be magnificent if there were a federal law or at least a Department of Education mandate that all public schools have the finest quality risk assessment tools that research has available out there and be mandated to use them. Mm. Um, My daughter, Robin, Calvin's mother, happens to be an elementary school principal And in her school, the slightest indication from any child of possible harm to self or others uh, requires then a a good quality needs assessment that she has found on her own. One of the biggest gripes we have about Calvin's school is that it had nothing and unfortunately still has nothing. Um, And it's one of the reasons he's trying to decide whether he will even go back there next year. Um, He says they have seen kids at school with guns. Teachers themselves have received threats. uh, And all that happens is the child is sent to the AP. They talk to him for about 10 minutes and send him back. Oh, wow. So there's just within the same school district, there is clearly a wide variety of attention to risky kids. So I would say that's a really big policy issue. Gotcha. Well, thank you very much, Janice, for for sharing your family's unique perspective and sharing your knowledge uh, uh, about access dating back to your start with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I think that was a, a really insightful contribution. Okay, great. The next uh, theme that we're going to cover is equity. And to talk about equity, we're going to turn to Ann Seymour. Uh, Ann, welcome. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you, Dan. And I, 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 w- I need to say I'm a little bit emotional joining my fellow old buffaloes, Jeanette and uh, Janice, and especially Dr. Dean, who actually coined the term old buffalo to honor the elders of our field. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be with MVP today. We're thrilled to have you. So, Anne, we know that mass violence doesn't discriminate. Um, Lots of mass violence incidents that we know about have been motivated by hate. And at the NMVVRC, we've learned a lot from working with survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, the Tree of Life synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh, the Sikh temple in Wisconsin, And in Atlanta last year, there was the shooting spree that was targeted largely at Asian-owned businesses. Uh, So all of these issues targeting, um, you know, minority communities. How can we consider equity issues when we as communities and law enforcement and civic leaders prepare for and respond to mass violence incidents? Dan, I want to start by just emphasizing what I think we've heard already from Jeanette and Janice, and that is simply that 
Mass violence victims and survivors are not alike. Their personal histories are unique and may also involve histories of acute or chronic trauma and victimization. So their needs might could be much deeper than just our crisis response in the, in the aftermath of mass violence. And Janice spoke about access to services, but for so many survivors, equitable access to services can be a challenge, um, simply due to things like lack of trust of law enforcement or even us as service providers, sometimes a lack of understanding of their rights as victims that Jeanette described, and, and sometimes the provision of resources and services in terminology and language that they just don't understand. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned Pulse and uh, Tree of Life and the Sikh Temple um, and Greater Atlanta Spree Shooting because it's really important that the community provide support from trusted people who they can rely on and, and, and know that the services are going to be uh, culturally and locally competent. Uh, that's that's a really, I think, important distinction to make there. Another distinction that I'm curious about is, from your perspective, what is the difference between equity and equality? And why does that matter in providing victim services? Uh, it matters a lot. And uh, those of us who assist mass violence and all victims need to understand the difference. And I always refer to the Milken Institute School of Public Health here at GWU in DC. Um, and they make an important distinction that I'd like to share with you. Equality means each group or individual is given the same resources or opportunities. And equity recognizes that each person has different circumstances and equity allocates the exact resources and opportunities needed to reach an equal outcome. So. You know, in summary, equity is a solution for addressing what are imbalanced social systems. And justice can take equity one step further by committing to fix the systems in a way that leads to long-term, sustainable, equitable access for generations to come. So for us in our field, true equity really has to look at systemic change, not just being equitable on a case-by-case -case basis. And that's why I want to give a personal shout out to the Office for Victims of Crime at the Justice Department for focusing on equity as part of the Victims Rights Week theme, because we got a lot of work to do in this area, folks. Excellent. In, in what ways do you think that um, we should consider equity and enhancing equity when it comes to encouraging resilience among victims and survivors, among their families, and even among larger communities? Well, I know Dr. Dean's going to talk about resiliency, so I don't want to steal his thunder. But for me personally, the lived experience, the lived experiences of mass violence survivors, both prior to and after their victimization, we have to view them as assets and validate their lives experiences, not just the experience of being a mass violence survivor. We have to validate them as important factors in our needs assessment strategies, our survivor services, and our overall case management. And I, I believe, and I know my fellow old Buffalo support me in saying that only when we can begin to understand a survivor's life's experience and generational family history, can we provide support and services that are truly equitable. Okay. And uh, I'm going to hit you with a, a question that I've touched on with both of our previous guests. 
And, and that is, what should folks who are in elected office uh, or law enforcement, uh, what, what should they be looking at and, and looking at improving specifically from their perspectives when it comes to victims' rights, particularly equity? You know, it's, that's such a good question because we often talk about improving victim services, but it really does start internally with organizations and agencies, whether you're an NGO or a mayor or a law enforcement agency. And uh, organizations that serve mass violence victims should have a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement that supports its mission and goals and that really clearly commits to efforts that promote equity in the provision of services, but also their overall operations. And I encourage folks to visit the NMV VRC website because I think we have a really good DEI statement that for us, Dan, you know this, it's, it's more than just words. It's propelled us into positive action that affects you know, pretty much all that we do. Mm-hmm. And the other thing um, that I think is really important is we all need to learn how to be better allies to victims and survivors who may not have the access to services that Janice um, discussed and and try to become allies to them in ways that really meaningful. I always think, you know, being a good ally is showing up to a protest march and having my signs and writing letters to the editor. But what it really, you know, means is uh, I quote the Center for Creative Leadership, allyship refers to the actions, behaviors and practices that leaders take to support, amplify and advocate with others especially with individuals who don't belong to the same social identity groups you know as we do and so this i think is what's needed to contribute to the long-term systemic changes that true equity requires well that's really that's a wonderful quote and uh, thank you for sharing it and i think it's very on point for for the topic and and for victims rights week thanks ann you're welcome uh, and that brings us to the the theme that we here at the NMVVRC are adding to OVC's uh, rights, access, and equity, and that is resilience. And to talk about resilience, we've got the NMVVRC director, Dr. Dean Kilpatrick. Welcome, Dean. Thanks, Dan. And, and uh, before we go any further, I just want to say what a what an honor and a privilege it is to be on this same podcast with with you, and with Jeanette, and with uh, with Janice and Ann. Uh, really, do have uh, 137 years of experience uh, in the field, and I'm only responsible for a hundred of it. So you know, you're stealing my jokes now, Dean. But uh, that's that's quite okay. It, it really is. Um, I have to say, quite uh, an august group of folks that I get to talk to for this podcast, and it's it's been exciting so far. Um, for our conversation about resilience, Dean, um, I'm hoping that you can reflect on your experiences after September 11th, uh, 2001, um, after the terror attacks that uh, affected the nation, the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center, where, where you and I both work, um, conducted research about the impact on the community of New York City in particular. Um, What were some of the key findings from that research in terms of how they speak to resiliency? Well, first of all, what we did was a collaborative uh, research project along with colleagues 
at the New York Academy of Medicine and also um, SRBI, which is a national survey research firm uh, that was at the time headquartered in New York. And so part of the issue that's been talked about a little bit before is that it's one thing, and we know a good bit about what uh, the effects of of violent crime, uh, as well as other mass casualty incidents are on, on individuals. But when you've got a whole city that has been affected one way or another by what's happening, it was really important to find out who is doing well, who is not doing well, what are some of the factors that are involved in terms of, of uh, you know, who's more vulnerable when they experience something like this and who uh, is, uh, you know, has more resilience. And by resilience, it gets used a lot, but what it really means is there, there's bad stuff that happens in life to everyone. Uh, most people, if you uh, inquire carefully with them about potentially traumatic events that they may have experienced throughout their lifetime, most people have had one or more things, including things that happen during childhood and, and things that happen, you know, while they're an adult. And so resilience really means is that either when something bad happens to you, you are very strong or you are stronger and you're better able to withstand this really bad thing that happens to you. Or it means that okay, it affects you too after it happens, but that you're able to bounce back uh, quicker from that. So in New York, long story short, uh, we actually did a series of studies that uh, picked people randomly from the community, kind of ascertained whether they were direct victims or had been affected in an indirect way, uh, got some information about their histories, and then followed them up for as long as three years afterwards. And there were several things that we found that were, um, that were I think, interesting and important. One thing was, was that most people actually were resilient and, um, and did not have either post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or, or some of the other things we were looking at. The people that did have those, um, those kinds of problems afterwards, a lot of them got better within about the first two or three months afterwards. But then what happened was that that actually they sustained at a at a pretty high high level of post traumatic stress disorder and depression for up to three years afterwards. So, so there was a subgroup of folks who were not resilient, and those folks who weren't resilient tended to have persistent symptoms. They did, mm-hmm. um, and again, there may be a lot of reasons for that. One of which is people don't get treatment. Uh, uh, some people do get treatment, uh, but it's not you know, it's not good treatment. So the, the other thing that I wanted to do is just, just basically summarize a little bit about uh, what, you know, just overall we found not only from this study, but several other studies that we've done. And I think this is true of crime victims in general, but it's also true of, of people who, who experience, uh, you know, the crime of mass violence in, in, in which a lot of people experience bad things at once. I think uh, stressing again that that many people are resilient and and what some of the factors that that lead to resilience are, uh, one of which is if you have a high degree of social support from other people before uh, uh, an incident like this happens, uh, you're you're more likely to do well and recover faster. Mm. 
having said that, there are a subset of people who do develop post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, alcohol and drug use problems, other kinds of things like that. They also can engage in health risk behaviors and health problems. I mean, people don't exercise much. They don't eat well. They don't sleep well. Uh, they have other issues like that. Uh, mm-hmm. They have a lot of job and school and job performance problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can, at least. And that many people do not seek mental health services. Now, that could be because they're not available or it could be because people have very low expectations that mental health uh, services will will assist them. And just a couple of other things to mention as well, uh, that one thing that we found that I think is very, very important is that uh, things that happened to you before the traumatic event and that happened after the traumatic event are very important, Mm -hmm. in addition to things that happened during the traumatic event. So there are, ripple effects that happen to whole communities after mass violence. And it's just uh, important that we realize that uh, that we need to take that person where they are and know something about their history. And it's not just all about the, the mass violence incident itself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really interesting observation. I mean, to, to say that there are some things that happen in people's lives before a mass violence event, there are some characteristics of the event Um, whether it's how direct the exposure is to the event or proximity. Um, And then there are some things that happen in the aftermath. You know, not all of those things are, are fully controllable, obviously, but I'm wondering if there are any lessons from your research for first responders or government officials that um, those folks might consider as a way of, you know, promoting resilience after uh, a mass violence incident? Well, I would, I would take that one step further. Uh, I, w- I would say, first of all, that first responders, uh, law enforcement, uh, victims, service professionals, uh, politicians, all of these people are people first. Mm-hmm. And their histories matter as well. And, uh, and I think that one, one thing that, uh, Janice said that was um, really profound um, was that she is one of the preeminent uh, resources in the nation, if not the world, in terms of knowing the effects that that traumatic events have on people, that violent crime does, that drunk driving does. And she's the person people go to if they want to know how to do it right. And yet when this happened in her family, she, she went from being someone who, who obviously had more background knowledge than virtually anybody could possibly have, and yet found herself in a role where she's trying to deal with this in her community. So her role shifted. The same is true for first responders. Uh, the, first, the same is true for politicians. So a lot of times their own personal history, their own personal uh, experiences or lack of same, uh, you know, matter in terms of how they will respond in that situation. So we know that social, having a good social support network, having uh, healthy habits, having, uh, you know, doing the things that we know are good for us in terms of eating well, resilience, not coping with uh, um, excessive alcohol use or drugs. 
puts you in better stead when 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 you do experience a mass violence experience. Uh, so doing these these kinds of things beforehand and then keep doing them afterwards is, is a way to bolster resilience. And then the second thing that I will say about that is that recognizing that the effects of a mass violence incident or other kind of crime are not limited to just the direct victims, mm -hmm. that it can have ripple effects on the whole community. And so realizing that, uh, uh, you know, I don't have to just categorize somebody as a direct victim and then try to, they, they get needs and services. These indirect victims who may be either related to someone, may be a friend, they may worry about the community as a whole or whatever, uh, they, they need some services too, and they need information and, and, and help sometimes. That's a great answer. Thanks. So, um, We've talked a, a lot about, you know, sort of the impact on folks. I, I wonder if, if you want to switch gears a little bit and talk about efforts to improve um, or ameliorate the effects of mass violence exposure on folks. What, what are some evidence-based strategies that can help mass violence victims and survivors cope with um, and recover from exposure to mass violence? Well, I, I think the first thing we need to recognize is that when a mass violence incident happens, it does affect the whole community. Obviously, the effects are, are you know, more profound for, for the direct victims and, and their family members and friends. However, it affects the whole community. Well, what does that mean? It means that you've got to scale up and be able to deliver accurate information to large numbers of people. You also want to bear in mind Maslow's hierarchy of needs where people's need for safety, uh, shelter, which may be affected in some cases for food, water, uh, support uh, are, are perhaps more important than the higher level needs. And so you need to make sure that that's taken care of. There interventions that are done very briefly that have good evidence uh, support for one is called psychological first aid which is basically just trying to find out what are the most pressing issues for people right away and then helping them with that i think giving people information about what are some common things so that when these things happen uh, people don't think they're crazy there's a another uh, evidence-based uh, uh, treatment that has been shown to be very effective that's called skills for psychological recovery there are some evidence-based uh, uh, actual formal mental health treatments if people need those um, and so there, there are a variety of things and and you know various uh, ones of these will work better uh, for various uh, individuals or better for some individuals than others. Yeah. I do think that the notion about um, that what happens to you now is affected by, by what has happened to you before, and particularly people who are victims of, of child physical or sexual abuse and or who've had some sort of interpersonal violence before, uh, it is much more likely that they're uh, they're either going to develop new mental health problems or the perhaps previous mental health problems that they had will be exacerbated and come back again. And so um, you, you need to tailor what happens to people. And one way of doing that would be to find out about some of these key variables, including social support. And, and there are some, for example, apps and things like that that are kind of designed and, and self-help 
uh, uh, tip sheets and things like that to kind of help assess how much social support people have and then and then basically maybe help them uh, get social support if they don't have it because you know going through this with somebody else who can help you uh, really does make a lot of difference yeah i think that's just such an important thing to highlight is that uh, is sort of keeping on the theme that that we've been talking about uh, with you and Anne is not every victim is the same and not every victim will have the same needs and not every intervention is is necessary or will 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 work the same way for uh, each each victim of a mass violence event and and being able to tailor being able to have the information that um, there are multiple ways of providing assistance in the aftermath, whether it's at the community level, the individual level, and so forth. I mean, I think putting that together as a mosaic is a really uh, important picture of thinking about that. And just because I have to, Dean, shameless plug, are, are there any resources that you would want to highlight um, specifically that, that bolster resiliency among mass violence victims? Well, Dan, it's funny that you ask, but I actually would uh, like to mention one, and that is called uh, Transcend, which is a a sort of self-help psychoeducational, uh, not to use jargon, but it it just has a lot of information about what are some common problems that people may have. It has assessment procedures in there that you can take yourself to find out how you're doing in a variety of areas, and it and and most importantly, it has uh, a series of of activities that you can get involved with to manage uh, uh, mental problems or issues that you may be having uh, that can encourage you how to get out and get active, and and how to um, interact with other people. What are constructive ways of dealing with uh, with various problems, or more constructive ways of dealing with them than any than uh, some of the traditional ways, such as uh, you know getting drunk uh, so that you sleep better. Well, it turns out you don't really sleep better. Uh, so uh, it, it's just designed to be available to anybody who's got a smartphone or any kind of online. Uh, uh, ability to get online through a, uh, you know, through a tablet or computer. And it's perfectly free. And there's also, if you want to find out more about it, I believe there might have been a podcast that just going to say, for more information, you can sort of scroll through back previous podcasts and listen. That's right. Dr. Dan uh, explains uh, a lot about uh, about that. And it's absolutely totally free. You can get it from uh, the uh, the Google Store or uh, for uh, from Apple Play, and it's uh, Transcend. Uh, An MVC. Yeah, just just as we rehearsed it. <laughs> Thanks, Dean. Um, so that that brings us to the conclusion of this pod. And before I wrap up, I want to offer each one of our esteemed guests um, sort of an opportunity to put a bow on their comments. Uh, and, you know, it's not, we're, we're looking for sort of a, a one sentence, but obviously we're not gonna, you know, cut you off, but sort of a, a pithy way of summarizing or, or reacting to 
the National Crime Victims' Rights Week tagline, which is, how can we help mass violence crime survivors find their justice? So um, starting back at the beginning, Jeanette, how can we help mass violence crime survivors find their justice? Thank you, Dan. And I uh, so appreciate the comments of my fellow podcasters here. But I think I go back to something that Janice said, and that is that the fact that we need more human contact. And I think all of our organizations can provide written materials for people, whether it be what their rights are uh, in the criminal justice system, uh, what they might expect in their reactions to being involved in an incident of mass violence and hopefully surviving it. But I I think that human contact is so important. So I would say that I would be a strong proponent of that actual in-person response, um, whether it be to groups and or individuals, either like through some of the services that NOVA provides, group crisis intervention, and or the companioning through family assistance centers and other services that are available in the aftermath of these mass violence incidents, I still maintain there is nothing to replace that in-person response, um, hopefully from a trained, competent crisis responder. Thank you, Jeanette. Janice, your turn. Tell us how we can help mass violence crime survivors find their justice. Yeah, my, my comment was going to be pretty similar to what Jeanette just said so let me let me see if i can uh yeah she she stole your your stole my gotta you've got to come up with an alternative (laughs) but that actually was very sweet of you and i appreciate it um if every service provider out there could first and foremost be kind the default attitude of healthy human beings is hospitality And if we could just really wrap our brains around that, then all the skills, all the knowledge, all the tricks, all the stuff in the toolkits need to be there. But I believe they are secondary to that human response. That's wonderful. That's a very powerful thought, Janice. Thank you. And your turn. How do we help mass violence crime survivors find their justice? Dan, by remembering that it is their sense of justice, not ours. Okay. And uh, last but certainly not least, Dean, uh, your turn. How do we help mass violence survivors find their justice? Well, I think the main thing we need to do is to remember that not all survivors are alike. Uh, They may have different needs and different desires. And justice for one may not look like the same thing as justice uh, for another. But one of the things that uh, that that I think uh, was very meaningful about uh, what Janice said during this podcast was that we could start by being nice. We could start by assuming that everyone would like accurate information. We could start by trying to find out what people want and need and then try to uh, do what we can to facilitate that happening. Great. Thank you. Uh, Well, everyone, thank you so much for uh, participating in this uh, National Crime Victims' Rights Week special edition of the podcast. Um, I thought it was fascinating and truly an honor to speak to four 
true legends in the field of victim services. Uh, and I think you've provided us with a lot of perspective on the themes of this National Crime Victims' Rights Week. This has been another edition of the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast. Thanks for listening.